y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America Podcast, Volume 21. We have an awesome show for you this week with Sports Center anchor Kenny Maine. Dude's hilarious. I mean, he's part sports guy, part quarterback, part comedian. For the record, I'm entirely too stupid to comprehend about 75% of his jokes. He has that dry wit that just goes right over my head most of the time. Yes, he was a college quarterback. Played at UNLV. We get into that, his quarterbacking skill. I couldn't believe some of the things he said about his time being a signal caller. His greatest contribution, most certainly dance center on Dancing with the Stars. He hung out with Lynn Goodman and Jerry Rice to produce a (laughs) hilarious analysis on that show. And now he's a philanthropist, too. I can't wait for you guys to hear why it's so important to him to give back to the veterans who served and defended this country. Tremendous conversation with a fascinating person, someone I've long admired since high school. Don't tell him. He'll feel really old. But before we get to Kenny, I want to discuss Kalo rings with you guys. Like I do most weeks, Kalo rings are amazing. I wear them every single day, and I have for years. They're the functional wedding ring. They're designed to ensure your hands are safe and comfortable in the workplace, the gym, the outdoors, and everywhere in between. Unlike traditional metal wedding rings, Kalo rings are made from silicone. That allows you to keep your ring on in times when traditional metal wedding rings would need to be removed. Kalo rings allow people to live their lives safely and comfortably while still representing their commitment to their spouse and to their family. I wear them all the time. Like I said, I love them. I'm very active. I love to train for triathlons. I've taken up pickleball recently. I'm infatuated with pickleball. That might end up being a whole Marty Smith's America podcast. I can wear my ring while I'm playing pickleball and not worry about smashing my finger. I don't even know it's there. NFL players wear them. Guys like Andy Dalton, Kirk Cousins, Jordy Nelson, and Derek Carr. NBA stars Steph Curry, Isaiah Thomas, and Harrison Barnes. They wear them. Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, and Chris Bryant from Major League Baseball wear them every day. Country music icons, buddies of mine, Jason Aldean and Sam Hunt, they wear them on stage. And if you're a firefighter, policeman, or member of the military, maybe you're a carpenter, construction worker, electrician, or mechanic, they are perfect for you. Kalo rings allow you to do your jobs and not even have to worry about removing your ring. Hundreds of professional athletes, Olympians, MMA fighters, CrossFit champions, and pro surfers wear them every day. And you can get what you want. There's plenty to choose from. They're available in 18 different styles and more than 50 colors. All you have to do is go to Kalo.com and use the code MARTY for 15% off. That's Q-A-L-O.com, promo code MARTY, and you get 15% off your order. You can also go to retail stores nationwide, including Academy Sports and Outdoor, Bass Pro Shops, REI, and Dick's. If you're an active person like me, make sure you go to QALO.com, promo code Marty, and get your rings now. And now, it's time for my conversation with Sports Center anchor Kenny Main. Well, I had to scour through my Rolodex to find somebody to talk to this week, and I happened upon Kenny Main's name, and I knew Kenny wasn't doing anything. So, you know, he doesn't have much going on. Sports Center anchor, comedian. I mean, he's a com- you're a comedian, right? You're a comedian. I'll give you that. I don't know. Have you ever looked at my Wikipedia page? Somebody, and I appreciate what they're doing, has taken it over. Because you can put anything you want on Wikipedia. Like one time my friend 
Matt Doyle and I were at a Seahawk game talking about how ridiculous it is. I said, you could put down that I invented the sun, right? And that'll <laughs> sit there for a few days. So he went on Wikipedia and wrote, Kenny Mayne invented the sun, you know, in 1946 or whatever he said. So, yeah, somebody's had some fun with my page, which I don't care. I think it's, you know, as long as it's not, you know, defamatory, it's fine. For the record, uh, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I am I am too stupid to understand and comprehend at least 75% of your jokes. Don't hold it against me. Um, we'll, we'll worry about that later, I guess. Uh, your greatest <laughs> professional contribution certainly is Dance Center. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But Yeah, which they killed. Why did they we kill Dance even... Center? It was Laney's favorite thing in the world. Apparently... The excuse they gave us, this is for those who don't know, Jerry Rice and I were actual competitors on Dancing with the Stars way back when. I lasted one dance. I, I was misjudged, <laughs> though. No, seriously, I, you go back and look at the tape. I was not a very good dancer, I'll give you that, but I was not the worst one. So I should. I got thrown off for political reasons on the first one. The Bruno didn't like me, and I kind of was mocking the judges, and they were like, get, let's get rid of this guy. But it kind of like opened up a cottage industry for Jerry Rice and I and Len Goodman to go, oh, that's my alarm to call you. Hold on. Thank you. Good. Well, that's good. I appreciate punctuality. You know what? I don't really do like a day timer. I just, if I, if I remember stuff I was supposed to do, I set an alarm for one minute before I was supposed to do the thing I was supposed to do. And I was supposed to call you right now, but you then texted and said, call early. This is not live people. Okay. Nope. Um, so Jerry Rice and Len Goodman and I did this bit for, I think we did it for like 10 years. I mean, a long time, whatever it was. And we, we sort of did a fake football analysis show, but we called it Dance Center, and it was breaking down. And, you know, you know this, but not all your listeners do. Uh, but eventually they went down to one show a week. So there was just no place for us, apparently, was the decision. So, yeah, we haven't done that for a while. Why didn't Bruno like you? Because you made fun of him? I, I think there was a part where I said, "Who are you to judge me?" And that was that was the. See, you would have got that joke. He's a judge. So, who are you to judge me? And I don't know. I mean, I was not a good dancer. I'm not a good dancer. I I danced my ass off at my wedding a year ago with Gretchen. That's we just had our one year anniversary. Um, but you know, that's because you're in the Bahamas and you're having fun on a beach. You just let everything go. But I, I think I have good rhythm. But I, I don't ever I don't articulate it on the dance floor often. Well, I'm 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 the worst ever. Uh, I don't know how to move my hips. I can't keep rhythm. It's it's a yard sale. I'm a walking yard no. sale. What I do is I just follow her. Whatever she does, I might not do it as as uh, effortlessly. But in fact, I just tripped over something in my living room. Um, <laughs> but I just follow her. You follow the girl, and you're okay. It's applicable in life, right? Like, you can take that and extrapolate it across all of life. Just follow your girl's lead, and you'll be just fine. That's a fact. So one of those things that you're doing with her is a new philanthropic effort that I feel like is absolutely amazing. Run Freely. I want you to tell the audience, tell the listeners what Run Freely is. Well, you know what? When you called and said, are you free today? I was free, but I would have made myself free because we're trying to hype this thing as well as we can. Uh, to make a long story short, but I, I won't be able to, you, you can find out the whole thing on our website. It's called Run Freely, R-U-N-F-R-E-E-L-Y, runfreely.org. So way back when I played at UNLV, last play of a game at Oregon, 
I had a fracture dislocation. Somebody stuck their helmet on my ankle to, you know, get a good grade on film that next week and kind of ruined my ankle for life. Like, I, I played the next year. I tried to keep playing USFL Canada, somebody, but nobody would have me. Um, and then I got into what I do now. But each decade, the ankle just kind of got worse and worse. So I've had, you know, nine, ten surgeries, whatever, bone spurs, you know, putting the thing, pins in, pins out, everything. And now at my advanced age, it's just not a very good ankle. It's not very sound. So I can still get around. I get around every day fine, but it gets sore every day. Like it kind of blows up, and if I push it too hard. But recently, I, I ran into this guy in Gig Harbor, Washington, uh, near where my sister lives. She had tipped me to this guy, and I got this device called an ExoSim. And the second I stuck it on, I literally felt like Superman. Like, I, I first I cried for about two hours. Like, I couldn't believe my good fortune. Like, I finally have something that I can run and play flag football. I played some games with the veterans the last couple months. And no pain. You stick it what on. What is you it? Do whatever you want. Uh, it, it, they, make a mold of, they make a mold of your foot. And so it only, you know, mine fits me and yours fits you. Like, you know, it's independent only for one person. Um, and then you put that in your shoe. It's sort of like putting a leg outside of your leg, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's sort of a skeleton of a leg outside of your leg. So it's big and hefty looking, but it's carbon fiber, so it weighs almost nothing. And you just start going. It just displaces all the pressure so that your ankle is kind of along for the ride. So I'll take it out. My ankle's still the same bad ankle, but while I have the thing on, I can do almost anything. In fact, the one thing that's been the downers, I've pushed it so hard I've gotten sore elsewhere, you know, like using muscles I haven't used in years. Mm-hmm. And my knees are a little tweaky once in a while, but that's nothing to do with the brace. It's more me just kind of getting used to it and, you know, learning how to walk and run again, you know, like in better fashion. Why'd so, you cry? Yeah, like I couldn't believe how good it felt. I ran 15 miles an hour on a treadmill on day one. I was running in the street on like day two or three. Like they put you through a lot of drills, you know, that you like kind of like learn how to get your base again, how to walk, and you know, with this thing on your. It's like my good leg is now feeling deficient compared to my bad leg because my bad leg has so much power from this device. So Gretchen and I, really, I think it's just a day or two later. It's like we need to do something good with this because you know this is such a blessing to us, and. The thing is, this this device was made for veterans in the first place, and not just veterans, active soldiers too. It was made for the military because you know they were getting injured at war, and some of them having to phase out of their jobs because they weren't physically able again. Those who were retired having trouble just going to the mall with their kids and their wife or husband. Uh, you know, it's men and women who suffer this, and we said, let's just let's see if we can do something good. So we went through the whole process of starting a foundation. You know, you got to get an attorney and work with your state attorney general and go through all the process, the IRS. And and we started uh, a foundation to raise money to buy these devices for those who can't afford them. So we're having an event in Seattle, which is now less than a week away as this airs, uh, south, uh, east of Seattle, a place called Bellevue, Washington. Mm-hmm. And we got a pretty good cast. We got Lenny Wilkins, Jerry Rice, Steve Largent, Gary Payton, and Jamal Crawford. Nobody I asked said no. Everybody's like, that sounds great. I can try to be there. Jerry was coming in from California. Same with Gary Payton. Steve's coming from Oklahoma. Uh, Jamal's already going to be in town. Lenny's already in town. And we're just going to put on a nice little family show, like interview the guys, let some of the fans come out and try their skills against these athletes. Let me see somebody try to guard Jamal Crawford, try to score against Gary Payton. 
and have a little music and food and that's it. It's like there's no, it's not an auction. It's not, it's not anything more than everybody buys a ticket, comes to the event and, and hopefully they get something out of it. And then we're going to introduce some soldiers at the end who are going to receive our first braces or they like to call them devices, not braces. Why was it on you and your wife's heart to assist veterans? Well, I think principally I knew that it was invented by this guy, Ryan Blank, specifically for, you know, our, our uh, armed forces folks that, you know, had been injured. So it was almost like I felt unworthy to receive one. Seriously, like I remember talking to one of the vets there and it was really emotional. I was like, I seriously felt like I didn't deserve it. All I did is, you know, play stupid football got hurt and I'm limping around and these guys went out, men and women went out and, you know, did something more notable than us. And, and he really schooled me like pain is pain. Like it doesn't matter how you got it. Like getting out of pain is a good thing, whether you're a civilian or military or what. And eventually, hopefully everybody can benefit from this in the end. I mean, I don't know how big the foundation will ever get right now. We're pretty small time, but you know, you, you literally have to take the first step, you know, and figuratively, literally. So we're doing it. And plus, We've been involved in some of that before. We lost my nephew after Iraq. He had PTSD and went out drinking the day after he got released from the VA. And my sister started a foundation uh, to honor him. His name's Kyle Farr. And she runs a half marathon up in Gig Harbor, Washington, where they raise money and put it into PTSD programs, whether it's mountain climbing, horses, dogs. There's a farming program up in Mount Vernon, Washington, that's doing amazing things where the veterans... That's what they do. They they grow crops together and they talk and they hang out and it's just like this rehabilitative thing that's not drugs. So um, I, I think it was just there. It was pretty obvious that we should do something more than just take my brace and run. You know what I mean? Like like it felt like we should do something more. And we've gotten a lot of really good responses. I mean, Jamal Crawford's constantly and Gary Payton just today retweeted something about it. And we're just trying to get the word out more and more because it's such a specific thing, you know, like everybody knows about fighting cancer and heart disease and diabetes and, and, and all these different programs around the country. And then you got the more obscure situations where somebody has, I have a friend whose kid suffers from something. I can't even pronounce the name of it. That's like such a, such a specific thing. How many people can you get interested to help with that cause? Right? Like everybody, everybody has a worthy charity and, we have to figure out a way to kind of stand out so people can understand this really does matter. Because if you haven't lived with waking up in the morning and not really wanting to take your first step out of bed, it's hard to relate to it, right? Most of us get along okay. We might have a creaky back or something, but most people get up and take their shower and go to work. They don't like, oh, God, i got to put on my shoes again. That's going to hurt, you know. So, you know, I, my, my leg was such that about five or six years ago, I seriously went in to consider uh, uh, the worst. I, I went into the ankle replacement guy. I went into the ankle fusion guy, and I went into the cut it off guy. What Amputation. you considered amputating your ankle? Yeah. Wow. The pain I mean, was that it, it dramatic. Was, yeah. The thing is, though, I those were the, that was the best appointment I had because they talked me a they talked me out of it, and b they they said they gave me some advice. Go find a better brace. Go find a better therapist. And I found both things, you know, within a number of years. The the Cairo guy I go to in Seattle is amazing. He's he like, you know, saved my ankle basically, brought it back to life with his manipulations, and then eventually I I caught on to this new device, and it it, it truly changed my my life overnight. 
or in one day. You mentioned so, Steve Largent a moment ago. I met I met Steve Largent a few weeks back when the Special Olympics USA games were in Seattle. We were out there covering it. What a nice man, quiet guy. Yeah, uh, the kid who played ahead of me at UNLV, Sam King, got a tryout with the Seahawks. He got a contract offer, but he turned it down to go to Canada and try out for a team up there. So my coach called up there and said, "Hey, the guy behind him, if you like Sam, you'll you know you might like this other guy. He wasn't that far off." So I got to go throw for Seattle signed a contract, ended up failing the physical because of this ankle I was describing and lasted, you know, two hours. Like I, I threw in Kirkland for a while in pre-camp, but when I got to actual training camp, literally didn't get to get on the field because I failed their, their little test they threw at me. I thought it was just like running another 40 or something. So I'm like trying real hard, trying to impress them. If I had known I would have cheated, I would have gone easy on my good leg and hard on my bad leg. And the two would have looked similar, but instead there was, such a dissimilarity that they were like, no, nah, you're, you're done. But when I got to do my original tryout, you know, they were looking for somebody to come out and run some routes. Steve Largent happened to be in the building. So literally my opening NFL trial was throwing balls to Steve Largent. Unbelievable. All right, you're a Seattle guy, though, too, right? You're a Seattle boy. What, first, yeah, i got I two questions about that. Number one, what was it like to sign your name to – a Seattle Seahawks contract, even if it was for a day or whatever. And two, what is that moment like where you're throwing to probably the most revered Seahawk ever? And that includes Russell Wilson and Cam Chancellor and all these guys. Yeah, it was pretty bizarre. I mean, I signed whatever they put in front of me. It's pretty much like my first ESPN deal. <laughs> what, how much? I don't care. Here's my name. All right, I'm in. I'm in. Um, yeah, so I think I was going to get. 30, 35, I mean, this is 1982, mind you. I think my first deal was bigger than Dave Craig's first deal. He's still pissed about that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, throwing, the thing is, you, you get over it quick because, like, you're in the moment, like, okay, I got to get over the fact that that's Steve Largent over there. Like, you know, don't be freaked out by the situation. We got to throw against Kenny Easley one practice. Mm-hmm. I think we completed it for, like, two feet. He pushed my receiver back so far on a curl. Like, it's supposed to be like a 12-yard curl, 14th one. And he was so tight on, I had to wait and wait and wait. <laughs> Seriously, like, like drilled a guy from like seven yards, you know, like it wasn't, it probably wouldn't officially been a completion, but it felt good. But no, I think in any situation, whatever your sport, um, you see it all the time now, right? The rookies come in and they got to immediately play against LeBron. Like, you know, you, you can't back down from it, but it was a thrill and an honor. And, 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 uh, you know, that's a long time ago now. So we would, we moved on to other things, but I'm really fortunate. Steve's a good guy, said yes right away. Gary, the same thing. Jamal, we've known for a while. He, he was in on it right away. And uh, and, a, and a late ad was Lenny Wilkins to stop by. I'll tell you somebody else who offered to help out, but we're going to find a way to use him later, is Dale Earnhardt. Really? He, his, the prize for him, he couldn't make it to the event, but we dreamed up, what about if we send somebody to him? So I'm going to find the right means to kind of like try to find a way to auction that off because I have found that my little amateur hour Twitter auctions, you know, they feel good. We raise a couple bucks, but we want to maximize something like that. And then another one is Jenny Simpson, our track and mm-hmm. field star from Colorado. She's offered kind of a similar approach to the Dale Earnhardt Prize. So hopefully after we do our event on the 11th, we continue to, whether it's monthly or quarterly or whatever, we'd like, hey, here's a big prize. Who wants to bid on it? Let's raise some more money for the veterans. So we'll, we'll hopefully continue this out and, Think of new ways, innovative ways to, to bring in some dollars. Some people listening to this will be shocked that you played football. 
Not everybody knows that, yeah. right? And they also don't well, know that, that you, well, you were good, man, when you were at UNS. So, so you guys may not know Kenny plays quarterback. First of all, let me back up a little more. You're like this JUCO All-American guy, right? Yeah, I think I was better in junior college than four year. And I, there's some things I'd like to do again, but you can't. You have to, you know, be in the moment. Um, I was all right. I I had a I had a better than average arm, and maybe I should have concentrated. Maybe I should have run their plays better. I like uh, I kind of review that once more because our coach <laughs> Tony Knapp, he used to let the quarterbacks call their own plays. I remember even asking him, finding that that was like I wanted to know his philosophy. And it was simply this. It's such a great lesson, you know, whether it's sports or anything. He said, by Saturday, if I haven't taught you what I wanted to get from you, then I haven't done my job. Hmm. So he took the approach that, you know, we're going to install on Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever it was, and go through the repetitions of what we want you to execute against whatever team we're playing. And I should have taught you well enough that I can trust you to go out and do what I want. You know, they'd send in some plays occasionally, but generally speaking, he let us run the show. He wanted to see us, you know, get the feel of the game and run the show. Now, unfortunately for me, since I was second string, you know, I didn't get that many chances at it. But you played behind was, a pretty good player. But you have that backwards, though. People—that's another mistake. In the same way that people think I'm the same height as Linda Cohn because they set the chairs at the levels. <laughs> unfortunately, you're you're referring to Randall Cunningham. He was actually behind me because he was a freshman, you know, and I was a senior that year. So Randall was like fourth. It was Sam, Alan, me, then Alan Reynolds, then Sam, then uh, Randall, who I think ended up redshirting, if I'm not mistaken, that first year. But he, and, and it was funny because he didn't really play full-time, I think, until his sophomore, the sophomore redshirt year because they had some other good guys. You know, he was still learning the ropes. He clearly had all the athletic ability. Like, he had the crazy arm, and he could punt, too. Remember, he was, like, I yep. think one of the top yep. But, yeah, you could tell Randall was destined – for for big things i mean we after practice sometimes just screwing around we'd throw it back to the building and i could throw it to time like 70 plus yards sometimes whoa randall was randall's ball is still rising like no he he literally could throw a football <laughs> 80 80 82 yards like like legit little wind behind him in hawaii at those remember those those little quarterback competitions oh yeah so so randall cunningham legit had an 80 yard spin yeah that's a fact that's insanity. Yeah, especially like because most of us who still like I know you love to throw it around. Oh, I love. And it. as oh. I get old, I can still throw short as the same as I always did. Maybe even harder. I might be stronger. Um, but long, if you don't throw rep with repetition, you know, you just don't have the the muscles aren't stretched out in the way they once were. You know, we used to throw you around. Now I throw you know once every month or something. But the thing, a tangent to the the veterans cause we're doing. For about five years now, I've and you should come out and I'll tell you when the next game is. You, you'd love it. It's it's veterans, most of them with amputations, against NFL players, ex NFL players. Oh, that's cool. And we played it two or three times a year. We just had a game in San Diego. We had a game at Minnesota at the Super Bowl, and it's the most. It's just so thrilling. The whole thing, so just being around the men and women for starters. We got a couple females out there who are pretty good. You've heard of Jen Welter. She was the first NFL female coach for the Arizona yep. Cardinals. Yep. Um, she, she's the quickest player. She always sacked the NFL quarterback like three times. Like they can't believe I had this girl just get in there and sack me. I barely got the ball. Um, <laughs> but we, we get a great crew. Drew Bledsoe was played last time. Ryan Leaf was out there last time. Uh, Steve Berline was out there last time. 
Todd Marinovich, uh, Sage Rosenfels has helped out. Uh, Ricky Williams has played. Snoop Dogg has played. Like we get, okay. we get a good list of of some folks, you know, notable people that come out and help. And it's just a good game. It's just like a wholesome night, you know. Like the the veterans get to do something they used to do. Maybe they played in high school or college. The fans kind of get something out of it, you know, like like honoring them for what they've they've done in service. And then, by the way, it's like a legit game. It's it's not what it sounds like just because they're amputated. My my best receiver has one hand. He makes the Odell Beckham catches. The fastest guy in the field is the guy with two blades for feet. So mm-hmm. it's it's worth seeing and it's worth participating in. And and I'm going to get a hold of you next time we do one. Do it. I'd love to play. Uh, what kind of athlete is Snoop Dogg? He's very good. He was my most reliable receiver in the two games. Like he just knows where to be. He knows, you know, he knows how to find the, the hole in his own. He knows, you know, the terminology. And the best thing about Snoop is once he makes his big entrance, which is bizarre by itself. I mean, you just have to see it to believe it. Once he gets there and he gets, now we're just playing catch and now we're doing football. He's just another one of the guys. He has absolutely, you know, no preconditions. Nobody, ha- you know, he doesn't have to have special treatment. He's just, he's just a guy hanging with the guys on the sideline. What does his entrance look like? Um, well, it's just like, you know, we're out there warming up. He comes in. He's got, like, four big bodyguards. They play his music. There's a cloud of smoke, and he just slowly <laughs> descends down the field. It, it's, just, it's just a good moment. It's like it's sort of surreal. It's like, oh, my God, so that's Snoop Dogg. He's Snoop Dogg's slow motion walking toward us, you know. And then there's always, like, you know, 500 photographers, you know, because usually that one draws a little more attention than most of our games. But it's been fun. I, the first one I did was the game where the Seahawks beat Denver in New Jersey to win the Super Bowl. So I've been doing it ever since then, two or three times a year. And it's it's one of the things I look forward to most throughout the year. Like, good, there's another game coming up. So Kenny and I have a lot of things in common. Our professions are very similar. We work for the same company, et cetera. But we both have this tremendous passion for Pearl Jam's music. Uh, the one thing we do not have in common in that context is that he actually knows them and is their friend. I only wish that I could be that person. How did you get to know Eddie and the boys? Well, really, it's Jeff Amen, their bassist, who I know the yep. best, but now I've met them all through the years. Um, this is back when I, I had a TV job. I told you about the Seahawks story. So after that, I got a TV job in Seattle. Right, that was My first market was Seattle. But I was like a gopher. I was, I think they call it a PA now. I was just like, you know, the guy doing what other people wanted me to do. Eventually I got on TV and then eventually I quit that job for some reason. So now we fast forward from there. I'm in my, I call it my blue period. I was, let's see, I assembled garbage cans. I sold prepaid <laughs> legal insurance. Oh. Then I went into long distance sales and all this time I'm freelancing for ESPN or anybody who would call me up, right? I did some prime ticket. I did. NBA Entertainment, ESPN, whoever would call. And I was kind of like a freelancer for a few years before I got the official job at ESPN. Um, but NBA Entertainment calls one day and says, we want you to go cover Sean Kemp and Jeff Ament of the band Pearl Jam, which they were known, but they weren't huge yet. You know, they just kind of broken in and gotten some notice. And they're going to shoot a poster over at the Coliseum, which is now called the Key Arena, which is going to be torn down where the Sonics used to play before the guy from Starbucks sold them to people who don't live in Seattle. That's not still a point of contention for you, is it, brother? Well, 
I got nothing. I'm all for my daughter works at Starbucks. I'm, I'm, I, they do some good things. They do some good things in the community, create a lot of jobs. But the guy that runs the joint didn't need to sell the team to people who don't live in town. So that's a problem because that means they might take them out of town, which is what happened. But <laughs> going back to that story when there, there was a Seattle Sonics team, um, Jeff Amant and Sean Kemp were going to shoot this poster. I think the money was going to go to some good cause. And they had a, like a trampoline, so Jeff like has a bass guitar and he's jumping and dunking with it, and it was just like a really cool shoot. So we did the interview and we're all wrapped up, and we just happened to be walking out the same way, and we just started talking. I just kind of like walked him home. He used to live up near that that area of Seattle, and just had a good conversation. So we didn't really stay in touch that much for a while, but we kind of like remet again in 2001. Remember the All Star game, the baseball All Star game was in Seattle that year. Um, and he was in the celebrity softball game with me. And we've just been friends ever since. You know, he's just easygoing Montana guy, loves basketball. He's a huge NBA guy, huge basketball, college basketball guy. He played for Montana briefly, University of Montana. And he Did can he still really? play. But now, yeah, now he's he's not quite as old as me, but he's older. But he still loves it. He he lives for basketball. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a freak for that. Um, but they're all just, honestly, the funny thing about it, and, it, and it's true with anything, really. All these different people have these special talents, but, you know, they're all human. They're, like, like, they're uh, just dudes. I say it all the Mike, time. Mike McCready, the guitarist, uh, he suffers from Crohn's colitis, and he's been involved, as have I, with him for, like, the last three or four years. They, they play a flag football tournament all around the country, and the money goes to help without foundation, you know, like research on Crohn's colitis, which is a difficult thing. And it was, you know, uh, brave of him coming. You know, that's something, you know, coming out and saying, I'm dealing with this thing. And he thought he could use his voice to help others who are suffering the same thing and raise more money. Uh, I don't know Stone quite as well. I've met Boom and I've met Ed once or twice. But, yeah, Jeff's, Jeff's my true connection. We've been friends for quite a while. Did you ever meet Kirk Cobain? No. Yeah, I In fact, I remember the day it happened, I was shooting a freelance story for ESPN. I can't remember what the subject was, but that was a crazy day out there, like hearing the news of that. They and they were, it's funny, they were, you know, rival bands in the sense they were both trying to make it, but I think there was also a great appreciation for what each one was doing and, you know, how the, the, the remaining members of Nirvana carried on. So it, there's so much good music out there. I've, I've run into a couple guys in a different form but it reminds me of a great speech eddie vetter said at a, one of their concerts because one direction had come to town and i took mm-hmm. my daughters to that show they were younger then and ed took his daughter and there were some people like he got backlash like what are you doing at a one direction concert you know like as though that's too soft you know why would he a rocker be at that thing and he had a concert soon after and remember this thing was kind of floating around people were talking about it He's like, everybody should just kind of respect everybody else's music. They're all different forms. They're all good in their own form. Like, let it go. You don't have to, just because you're for this doesn't mean you have to be against that. Amen. It was like a really really cool message. And then I saw him at the Stevie Wonder concert, which was in Seattle, like, I think the next year, two years later, maybe. But I remember somehow he knew I was a huge Stevie Wonder fan, because I think Jeff must have told him or something. But, um, yeah, they, like like you can celebrate. You don't have to be into all of it. Same as sports, right? Maybe I don't know hockey as well as I know football, 
but I can appreciate hockey for those, especially who you know grew up with it, who has it, who have it in their blood. It's kind of the same same argument. He said something once. Actually, you and I were at at the same show. Uh, I saw you last year. I think it was last summer at Fenway Park. We yeah. went and saw Pearl Jam, and it was just this amazing exchange exchange two of summers. energy. What's that? That was two two, two summers ago. ago. Yeah, two summers yeah. ago. And there was just this amazing amazing exchange of energy. Um, with it all, there always is with them and their crowd. But he said something that night that left an indelible mark on me. And he was talking about how many, 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 many years ago they played in a little club in Boston and stayed at this Howard Johnson right across the street from Fenway Park. And yeah. that they always dreamed of having a bridge that would lead to Fenway Park. And he pointed at all of us, all 25 or 30,000 or whatever Fenway Park holds, and he said, you are our bridge. Oh, and yeah. It was this wonderful moment that. and this wonderful message, and I just will never forget that. Yeah, because they all know. I mean, I have a friend who said when Pearl Jam was first starting out, Pearl Jam was third on the ticket. It was Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I'll think of the other band here as I tell the story. I can't remember who it was, um, but it was just funny. Pearl Jam kind of dominated the night, but here they were just being the, the warm-up act for Red Hot Chili Peppers and, and this other band, whose name I still don't have. Uh, it was like Oasis or somebody. I don't know who it was. Somebody. Um, no, Smashing Pumpkins. Smashing Pumpkins. There you go. Yep. But the funniest part of the story was, he said the show's over. It was held at a small hall somewhere, whatever, you know, a thousand people. And here are these band members loading their own equipment in these rental vans and driving off to their motel. So, you know, everybody starts somewhere. You don't just light it up on day one and, and become that big star. Hey, the two names I was, your, your listeners can look these up. The two guys I told you I met, and this, this is how I started the thing about appreciating other music. We were at a Sounders game. I was with my daughter and her friend, and we're in this little suite, and, and this other guy's in there with us, with his people. And I, we didn't know who he was. We just shook his hand and you know, watched the game together. Turns out he's like this hip-hop guy out in Seattle, and Annie's like, Dad, that guy's famous. He's like, he's a musician. And she's whispering to me. We look him up. Turns out I love his music. I'm like hugely supportive of what he's doing. He's he's already broken through to some degree, but I bet you he's going to do bigger things. His name's Saul S O L. Go to your iTunes S O L. And then another guy, Ryan Caraveo. I was kind of linked from him to him. And there's just so much good music. There's a good energy out there. Um, I mean, heck, we we got like foundational, you know, historical figures. You know, we got Jimi Hendrix and Quincy Jones, and you know. On and on through the years, all these different bands that have kind of come out of that region and doing good things. I'll tell you a better Ed music story, and it relates back to my sister's foundation, you know, where they're doing the work against PTSD. There's a guy who spoke one year, and he told the story how a Pearl Jam song actually saved his life. You know, we're, Which we still song got was it? We still got tw- You know, I never heard the title, but he is one of those who was considering, you know, the ultimate choice. Because we we're still have something like 20 suicides a day, you know, from all the different wars. And he just had given up. He, I think he got into drinking and got into the depression of it all. And before he was going to do it, he was decided to, you know, go out with Pearl Jam, apparently. But instead, there was some lyric or two in a song. And he put the gun down, and he's still with us. And he's doing some writing, and he's, he's trying to get himself together still. But there's a lot of people hurting. Like, you know, the rest of us just covering sports and having these easy lives, you know, don't know what it's like. There's no way we can 
we can we can sympathize or empathize with it, but you can't have lived it because you didn't, you know. So mm-hmm. I think we need to have a little more empathy toward all that. That's the power of a song. Well said. And you're, the, you're saying the Pearl Jam shows in Seattle coming up next week are going to be fundraisers to fight against homelessness up in Seattle. It's the fastest growing city in the country, but it's also squeezing out a lot of people. And we have a serious homelessness problem. There's a lot of good projects going on to try to help one I'm involved with. It's called the Millionaire Club. They kind of like have it be that name as, you know, the the irony of it, I think, is, is what the original intention was way back when. And they do a jobs program every day. So people show up five in the morning and they hope they get a day job. And right now with all the building that's going on, we're putting up 12 skyscrapers out there. You know, a lot of people are getting work. So that's good. And they're trying to train them to, you know, make that be a consistent thing where they can, you know, find places to live. Rents are high. And I mean, it's a, it's a huge issue, not just Seattle, but elsewhere. But uh, the Pearl Jam guys decided to dedicate their two shows toward that. They've been putting out messages all the time. If you look at their website and their Twitter feed and, and just trying to wake people up, like there's a fine line sometimes, right? Like some of these people that are in that situation a year ago, they might have been holding a what we would consider a real mainstream, regular job with a house sure. and family, and sure, and you know they're a paycheck or two away from being in some jeopardy. So, hopefully, it'll do some good, and people will act on it. Just not that night, but you know, going forward. I ask you this, knowing I'm not certain I could answer it myself, and I know I couldn't answer it quickly. I would have to give it so much thought, but I'll ask it anyway. You've had this transcendent broadcasting career, and I mean, you are. You are a household name, and you've got the had the great opportunity because of ESPN and because of your platforms and because of your talent and resonance to interview some of the most amazing people and spend time with the most amazing people. What moments or interviews are the most memorable for you? That's a hard one because there have been so many fun times, too, the ones that could have been like a small deal, but you just had the best experience, you know, meeting somebody or different things that led you to. But if I had to just name it, the ones I think I've answered the question similarly before getting to work with Stevie Wonder would be number one and being at Dale Earnhardt's 500 win, probably number two. And then the next year, Dale was our co-host. We had this little uh, tradition of whoever won the 500 the next year would come in and help host Sports Center for a few nights. And he was just such he truly was like a sweet funny guy like beneath that surface and that exterior the intimidator i remember had i had a cold that week and i somehow he invited me to go have dinner with he and Teresa on the boat and he the whole time he's like trying to find me different cold you know try this here let me go back here and he's you know, like he was like he was like my uncle you know like you know caring for me because i had a show the next day and, and i remember him we were looking through the family portraits and going through all the years of the earnhardt family and he had to be somewhere for some kind of event and we weren't quite done going through the last book. He's like, no, you stay. You know, you go ahead and go through it. And then he, as he gets to the door, he turns around and goes, but don't stay too long. <laughs> that is so big E. What, what do you remember about that 500 win? Describe that day. Oh, by far, the thing that stands out, I mean, it was a great race, but by far the, the anticipation of he hadn't done it, you know, he'd won there before, but not that race. And, you know, the whole place is now pulling for Dale Earnhardt to finally get his 500 win. But the thing that stood out, will forever stand out, was when he won, he comes down, you know, heading toward victory lane. Normally, the teams that lose, the, you know, the moment the race ends, they're packing up their gear and getting the hell out. they got to load up and probably try to be the first truck out, right? 
And instead, every single team stayed out there and welcomed him as he came down the path toward victory lane. Every team. And they all reached their hands out. You know, they all wanted to be a part of it and wanted to let him know how much he was appreciated. So when he died, I remember they called me up. I wasn't working on that. And they said, can you put together some kind of obituary for the next day's shows? And I had shot the scene I was just describing. I'd walk to us. Remember, we had all those, those little Sony home cameras, you know, like you know, the little, little miniature tape, whatever they were made out of. And I'd shot that whole scene from my perspective. So when I did my obituary, we didn't show one second of him racing or anything else. We just showed my home camera of that scene. And I think I related it to maybe this is what it's like after you die. Maybe everybody who's ever been in your life somehow, you know, whether they're here or there, reaches out and tells you how you were appreciated. Like it was sort of a symbolism of, you know, his passing. So, But it was just such a beautiful scene. You can anybody can Google it and see what the reception was for him when he won his 500. When we when we got Stevie Wonder, I was going to the baseball All Star game, which was going to be in Detroit that year, and Stevie's born in Saginaw, Michigan. So I said, we, I want to try to relate the two and pretend that he was going to be there, but he can't for some reason. So I went down to this thing called Live Eight, not Live Aid, but Live Eight. It was the G8, and and there was this movement to get them to relieve African death, try to help some of the countries along. They had these concerts around, I think, two or three places around the world that week. And I called my old boss, uh, Tim Scanlon, no longer at ESPN, but great guy, uh, and said, hey, I want to go down to Philadelphia tomorrow. Steve Wonder's playing. Let me just see if I can get him. We'll just do something silly, and we'll put it in our show the next week at, at Detroit. And he's like, whatever, go ahead, give it a shot. And I had no press pass. I had no connection. I had no setup. I had nothing. But I show up in Philadelphia, and each moment as, as the day is going on, I kind of kept getting closer to the action. Eventually, I ran into like a teamster who was running the gate, and he, he gave me a lanyard. So now I'm like backstage hanging out with Sarah McLaughlin. And then, there's, there's, no, seriously, it was it, it was one of the most. What's the word? It was just, it was just like I, I just did this. It was like a high school project, and I just kept getting better access. You know what I mean? I was just just gunning for it. So the day goes by. I'm now standing outside Stevie's trailer, like maybe, I don't know, 100 feet away. And and they keep waving in all these people, like uh, Natalie Portman goes in, and Will Smith goes in. All these, all these famous people are going in to meet Stevie Wonder for five minutes, have a little audience with him. All of a sudden, the guy's, like, pointing at me, big smile, like, waving at me. And I'm like, how the hell, why would they be calling me? They don't know who I am. I take a step forward, thinking they're calling for me, and Don Cheadle walks by me. They were pointing to him the whole time. He was apparently <laughs> the next door. So now I'm like, great. I got nothing. They don't know who I am. We got no shot. But I just kept on working it and being patient. I got to the right guy. I think it was his brother, Milton Hardaway. And I said, I just gave him my pitch. I just need him for one minute. We got a funny line. It's going to be on ESPN. And they say, look, when he's out of the trailer, done with his performance, we'll give him to you for a minute. You can explain. If he wants to do it, he'll say yes. If he doesn't want to do it, he'll say no. I explained it. He said yes. And he did his line in one take. He, he was supposed to say, hey, I'm Stevie Wonder. I can't be at the All-Star game. I have a high ankle sprain. And that was it. <laughs> so then we used that in the week. Then remember the Super Bowl. Seahawks were in the Super Bowl, lost to Pittsburgh. That was in Detroit as well. And I got to do a, like a real interview with him. And then I met him once or twice like you know, at his shows. But, yeah, those would be the two, Stevie and Dale Earnhardt. That's pretty good living. That's pretty good living right there. 
I can't thank you enough, man. I've kept you too long already. And no, I appreciate your perspective and your insight and uh, hilarity. Man, you're funny as hell. I appreciate you. You keep up the good work and tell people to go to runfreely.org. I love that dude. I could talk to him all day long. We didn't even get into how he got to ESPN. He quite literally sent a letter to the Bristol campus and said, check yes or no. That's what he did to get his foot in the door at ESPN. Apparently, there was one option on that letter that said, check, we'll hire you when there's an ESPN 5. <laughs> That's the most Kenny thing ever. Uh, I appreciate him so much. And you heard him talking about his time uh, covering NASCAR. Kenny's uh, time at RPM tonight was the 1995-1996-1997 era of NASCAR when the sport was just exploding onto the national scene with Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt and that era of superstars. It had become truly a national sport at that time, largely, at least in part, because of RPM Tonight and what Kenny Main and that group at RPM Tonight did. Now, one member of RPM Tonight during that era was a little-known producer named Ryan McGee. I'm going to bring McGee in now for the Marty Party. What are we going to do, bud? We're going to drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Marty Party. So we got some rough news in the NASCAR community this week. The patriarch of NASCAR journalism, Charlotte Observer Titan Tom Higgins, passed away. He was 80 years old. And he was a great hero uh, to me and to Ryan McGee, my running mate on the Marty and McGee show every Saturday morning, 7 to 9 Eastern. And one of the greatest compliments that I ever received was from Tom. Uh, he had seen some work that I had done in NASCAR somewhere around 2010 or 2011, somewhere around there. And he saw me at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And to get a compliment from him stopped time. And I'll never forget the moment. I'll never forget the words. And uh, for a guy like that to tell you, hey, man, you got a future in this thing, uh, was so humbling. And uh, every time I was around him, uh, I felt like he was the largest personality I'd ever been around. And McGee has had a great relationship with Tom for a very long time. And so the first thing I want you to do is try to describe this man. He's this Paul Bunyan with a pen type of personality. Well, and, and I'll give you my, my personal description of him first. He's my third grandfather. Um, I mean, you, I, I was when I first started in this business, Marty, you know, I worked on a show called RPM Tonight. And Tom had just retired uh, after, gosh, what, 30-something years at the Charlotte Observer. 33. And – yeah, we and we called Tom and we called and asked, you know, we want to do an historical piece, you know, every month for our pen tonight. We're gonna to call it Rearview Mirror, you just tell us your best stories and we I was a young producer, we just would go to his townhouse up at Lake Norman and um he'd sit in his recliner and would just tell a story. And then my job was to go back to the office and like put it together almost like a little mini documentary. Well, those stories were great, but the best stories were when he would invite us to lunch. Um, after it was over with. And he and I go to lunch at this gas station and eat egg salad sandwiches around the corner of his house. And those were the best stories. And so, no, he, he was, um, I, listen, my, my, Erica, my wife and I, we have a, a rolling pin 
that we keep on permanent display in our kitchen. You were just in my kitchen a couple of weeks ago. There's a rolling pin that sits over in the corner. We keep it there because when Tom Higgins came to our wedding, that was his wedding gift. And he gave it to Erica and told her to use that on me anytime she couldn't keep me in line. And so he's, he was, um, and, and then in the industry, he was larger than life with the written word, but he was also physically larger than life. That was giant. He was, and he, he was had this big old person. booming voice from Burnsville, North Carolina. And so when he would start, ta- he, he was going to, he was going to own the room no matter whether he was a talker or not. And then he just turned out he's one of the great storytellers, you know, of my lifetime. One of my favorites you wrote about once uh, when he was given a, a great honor with the, from the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Uh, you wrote this great piece about him, and I love the line in there about him showing up at the racetrack for the first time, and that the <laughs> first race he ever attended was a, uh, was the first race he ever covered, right. and uh, that that Joe Weatherly and Curtis Turner were passing a bottle of beam back and forth, and I loved the line. Hey man, this is a hairy chested sport. I'm gonna like this thing. Yeah, and and so here's a guy that grew up in in the mountains, of North Carolina. Uh, his father was a um, game warden, um, and he grew up in the outdoors. And so those were the people he his dad was. A, his dad was like solid but strong was his dad, and and so those were his kind of dudes. And so yeah, he goes to the Asheville Weaverville Speedway, had never been on a racetrack in his life, and he got frustrated because you know he he wanted to cover football and all that. He, there's no press box at the racetrack. And he's like, I need some perspective. And so he found what was essentially like a ranger's tower, park ranger's tower, like on the grounds and the deer stand. He climbed up there and yeah. So there were two, uh, like him, future NASCAR Hall of Famers, and they were hiding from the heat and up there exactly right, passing amber liquids around. And those were his guys, man. And, and he always, he, the stories that he told about David Pearson, about Tiny Lund, um, you know, Buddy Baker, those were his running guys. And so he, he, he go fishing with Tiny Lund and Buddy Baker. And the story I always told was these are three gigantic men. And Buddy Baker, as big as he was, was they called him the gentle giant. He's kind of, kind of a wimp. And it's blazing hot. They're at Santee Cooper in South Carolina and they're fishing and they're on this little, little bitty John boat, all these three giant dudes. And they spent the whole time, Tiny Lund and, and Pat Higgins did getting Buddy all nervous about alligators. Well, they're all drinking. And it's 100 degrees, and finally Buddy goes, you know what, I'm going swimming. And he takes his shirt off, and he goes over the side of the boat to get in the water and cool off. Well, what he doesn't see, but, but Higgins sees it because he's sitting in the boat, Tiny Lund goes over the other side of the boat. And as soon as Buddy gets comfortable in the water, Tiny Lund under the water reaches up and with both hands just grabs Buddy Baker by the crotch <laughs> and just starts shaking him by his man parts. And, and Buddy thought that he was being just killed by an alligator and just started screaming like a, like a, he said, he said like a little girl. He thought an alligator was, was eating his man parts off. That's a tough way to go, son. Uh, yeah. You know, the thing that always struck me the most about Tom, uh, was first of all, he always said hello. And when you're a young man trying to enter the arena, uh, like I was in 1998, my first year covering the sport, young and dumb and thought I knew a lot and really didn't know a damn thing uh just to get a hello from a guy like him you know who was recently retired he had retired as we stated the year before but he always came to Charlotte he came to Charlotte every single year every race and just to be able to walk over to him and I mean get the guts get the balls to walk over to him and say Mr. Higgins hi there my name is Marty Smith I'm kind of new at this to not be blown off to be welcomed and to hear that commanding voice was so wonderful and it validated what my vision was of reading him as a younger man. 
And yep. I always I call him NASCAR's Faulkner. He had this amazing yep. way to envelop Southern culture and make it so cool in the way that he wrote about these good old boys beating doors and beating fenders and swilling liquor. And it was this world that I just desperately wanted to be a part of. He's one of the reasons well, that I chased race cars in the first place. And to that end, uh, I am forever indebted to him. You are too. We all are. He created the position, Marty. I mean, listen, yep. no one had ever covered NASCAR full time. I mean, there weren't, there weren't any, Ned Jarrett told me, he said, Ned Jarrett, he said, I'd win a race at Hickory Motor Speed or whatever. And he said, and they said, now you need to meet with the media. And he goes, and it would be somebody with a microphone from the local radio station in Higgins. And, you know, he, he created, well, all of us that, that, that spent so many years going 30 something races a year, he created that. But what he did was he, he taught us the rules because he wrote the rule book. And he was such great friends with these guys, but also knew that there was a time when he couldn't be their friend, when he had to report real news. And he taught me that. He taught me where the line is. And he also, to your point, Steve Wade, who God bless him, was standing bedside when, when Tom passed. Steve Wade and Tom Higgins and those guys, the, the, these young dummies like you and me, we show up. And what they do? They put their arm around us and wanted to teach us the right way to do it. And I hope that the young people covering the sport now, I hope that they say the same thing about us, that we pulled them aside and said, what do you need? You know, how can we help you? And because th those guys set the tone and, uh, you know, it, it's like a, like a football team locker room, you know, the veterans set the tone of the room and those guys set the tone of the room and they did it in the seventies. And, and the rest of us, I think are still benefiting from that. Even though, like you say, Tom retired, that's retired 20 years ago. One of the single greatest compliments or comments that you and I can receive and do receive that means the most to me is you're a throwback. I love yep. it. It's a badge of honor. I appreciate it. I know what they mean and why they say it. And I love it. And uh, rest in peace, Mr. Higgins. You're an absolute titan. And we appreciate uh, we appreciate the hell-raising example you set for us. Amen. Uh, Amen. Thanks for your insight, son. But before you go anywhere, our boy Andy yeah. Cagle called in to the Hillbilly Hotline. Travis, <laughs> what's Andy got this time? <laughs> Words, sayings, or just a way of life? The bowl cut plus the mullet, the bullet. <laughs> this is Hillbillyisms. Hey, Marty. It's uh, Andy Cagle again with another uh, Rockingham story. Um, so this story was about, uh, uh, gosh, 20 some years ago. I was getting ready to go to college. And, I uh, mean, a buddy of mine decided that we were going to go out and have some beers, even though we were 18. Uh, we were going to go out and have some beers in Rockingham, <laughs> kind of say goodbye, and, and before we left, uh, for NC State. And he, um, we went to this little old bar called, uh, the Gold Dust Lounge. And, uh, and it was me and my buddy Kevin. And these two old dudes and the bartender were the only ones in there and we were, we were drinking some butt heavies and having a good old time and, um, and heard this one old boy down there complaining about his tooth hurting. So the, the bartender, who was probably about the drunkest one in the place, looked at him and said, hey man, I can take care of that tooth. So we can do it right now. And the guy, he probably had, you know, a few too many cold beers and he said, uh, he said, alright. So, uh, the bartender, whose name was Jerry, his wife's name was also Jerry, and they had a son that I played baseball with, and his name was Jerry. And, uh, um, they, uh, this old boy got up on the bar, and Jerry took out a rusty pair of pliers 
from under the bar and pulled this old boy's tooth right there on the bar in, in the middle of just, you know, this dude sitting around drinking. I, I swear, it was the damnedest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then old boy got down off the bar, sat back down in his seat, put a napkin in his mouth, and continued drinking beer. Dude, huh? If that don't say rock and I don't know what does. Talk to you later, boy. How are you doing? So my favorite part of that story, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that is Andy Cagle at his best. Andy yeah. is, again, my our buddy who uh, took a lug nut upside the cranium uh, in the 1998 uh, Jiffy Lube 400. or pop. It might have been the, a Pop Seeker Popcorn 400 down there at Rockingham. Yeah, Speedway. I was there. The North I was Carolina a fellow, Speedway. Fellow Richmond, fellow Richmond County, North Carolina native. Go Raiders. Yes, sir. Red as a Budweiser Chevrolet, son. Uh <laughs> Yeah, my my favorite part of that story, he I mean, he kind of glossed over the fact that the bar was called like the Gold Dust or something. Like yeah, that. oh yeah, yeah. Let's no, I'm, aware. Like the gold I'm aware. Dust, of this, boys. I'm aware of this of this facility, and uh, that's what it was called. And I also love the fact that everybody in the family has the same name. That's uh, yeah, that's, Jerry, that's Jerry, dedication. Jerry. What that is? That's dedication. What did he say? That's he what said. That is. My dad and my dad's name is Jerry, and he's from Rockingham. So apparently, I missed out. What's wrong with you, dude? I don't know. I'm Jeremy, so I punted. But yeah, dude. Yeah, that's okay. The, uh, they, they, look, no. that's evolution. Evolution is a couple more syllables. You went from yeah. Jerry we, to Jeremy. That's a big win. Yeah. Evolution is, um, I can take that tooth out for you. You don't need to go to the dentist. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, reverse evolution. That, taking your tooth out like a caveman did, that's, uh, that's, that ain't evolution. Neanderthal. I like it. Uh, <laughs> huh? That's Andy Cagle, ladies oh, and gentlemen, and, uh, McGee. <laughs> Thank you for your time and insight. I know that you're running through the TSA pre-check as we speak. You call on me anytime, and you know you can. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is another uh, wonderful episode of the Hillbilly Hotline. I still don't know the number. Travis, enlighten us. Hold on. I forget. <laughs> Travis doesn't even know the damn number. 860 860- 315-1615. No, Call us with your amazing stories about being at the bar and Jerry pulling out the rusty pliers and Jerry, Jerry, and Jerry sitting there with napkins in their mouth drinking cold, bud, heavy. That's the Marty Smith's America podcast in a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much to Kenny Maine for his hilarity. What an amazing career that man's had. Thanks so much to McGee for taking time to give us his insight and his uh, unique brand of humor. Thanks to Travis for booking these amazing guests and being my partner in crime. Louise for giving us the platform. Kalo, thank you so much to Kalo for supporting this podcast financially. It means so much to us that they're invested in what we're doing. QALO.com, promo code Marty, 15% off. And above all, Thank you to you guys. Without you guys taking the time and the investment to listen, no reason to do it. Thank you to our military members, the men and women who keep us free every single day all around the globe. We are forever indebted to you. God bless America. It's the greatest country in the world. See you all next week.